The Washington Post, where democracy dies in darkness, if they have anything to say about it, has issued a correction for a story published in January that claimed Donald Trump told Georgia election officials to, quote, find the fraud in order to change the results of the presidential election. The story was repeated and spread in many anti-American outlets, including the House of Representatives, the Disney Plus Happy Happy Re-Education Theater at a Uyghur concentration camp in China, and NBC News. Now that the story has turned out to be 100% false, the Washington Post has dutifully issued a correction, which was inscribed on the head of a pin and left in a haystack where anyone who wants to see it can try to find it, and good luck to them. The reporter who wrote the false piece, Amy Gardner, was disciplined by being pronounced the biggest liar at the Post and given a small gold trophy engraved to that effect. With that bombshell debunked, several media outlets used the opportunity to offer their own corrections. For instance, CNN has issued a correction stating, quote, from March 2020 to yesterday, CNN reported that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was doing a terrific job handling the Chinese virus, that he was a wonderful person and that he would make a fine presidential candidate. In fact, he's a slimy lecher who slaughtered thousands through his incompetence and ought to be destroyed. Also, his brother is an idiot. Other than that, the story was correct, unquote. The correction was printed on a Kleenex and dropped from the top of CNN headquarters in Atlanta, allowing the wind to take it where it would. Cosmopolitan magazine has also issued a correction. The correction, stuffed in a model's underwear and then rendered unreadable by a Brazilian bikini wax, states, quote, In February 2021, we published several magazine covers showing obese women looking happy under the caption, This is Healthy. In fact, the model should have looked miserable, and the headline should have read, this is a COVID comorbidity that will also give you heart disease and cancer. And by the way, we were lying when we said it was attractive. We're actually laughing at you behind your back while we eat our salads, unquote. The New York Times, a former newspaper, issued their own correction, which was wrapped around a stick, set on fire, and then used as a torch by a screaming mob of 23-year-old ignoramuses who destroyed a company ladies' room for claiming there are such things as ladies. The correction stated, quote, in stories running from 2017 to late this afternoon, we published a series of articles claiming that Soviet communism was good while America was evil. In fact, oh, look, there's a racist squirrel, unquote. Speaking in unison, as they frequently do in line, mainstream media outlets said they would try to do better in the future. Then they issued a correction. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Life is tickety-boo Birds are winging, also singing Hunky-dunky-dee-doo Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy The world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray It makes me want to sing Oh, hurrah, hooray Oh, hooray, hurrah All right, once again, we are back laughing our way through the rubble and dust that used to be the Republic. This would be a wonderful, wonderful time for you to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, which currently I think has the uh, the num is subscribed to by the number of people who live in Saudi Arabia. We're trying to bring that down to the number of Jews. So it would go from 34 million uh, to one guy hiding under the table, pretending he hasn't subscribed. Uh, and if you leave a comment and the comment is sufficiently awful and cruel, uh, we will read it on the show. Uh, because it'll fit right in with the rest of the dialogue. We have a comment today from Phobos at the gates of E3M1. I was surprised when you showed that CNN clip of Andrew Cuomo 
But then I realized that was just a Looney Tunes clip of Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been working on my, my Cuomo uh, imitation. You know, it's like, do you like to date older men? <laughs> you know, I just, I just like, I almost, you know, I, I restrained myself from doing that yesterday during the backstage uh, with Candace. You know, we now I figured this, that we let a girl into the boys' clubhouse. Uh, I thought it would be funny. You know, was, hey, Candace, welcome to the Daily. I'm the governor of New York. You know, do you like to date older men? But I figured it would give Shapiro a heart attack. And you, you guys don't know the amount of restraint I put on myself to keep Shapiro alive. So we keep getting paid. Uh, you want to join, uh, be in the mailbag, you have to subscribe. Go to dailywire.com and subscribe. Then go to the podcast page. Go to the Andrew Claven podcast. Hit the mailbag and you can put your questions in there. Ask me anything you want. Religion, your personal life, politics. All my answers. <laughs> and you can, you will, that's what you will sound like when you get my answers because they are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life. Will they change it for the better? <laughs> fact that you would ask shows that you are not worthy to be watching this program. Uh, you know, Jeremy, the God King, said to me once, there are many kinds of intelligence. And uh, when it comes to promoting your self-intelligence, you have none. But I am going to one last time remind you that The Emperor's Sword, the third book in the trilogy, Another Kingdom, is now out. I would love it if you would go on uh, wherever books are sold and buy a copy, The Emperor's Sword, the third book in Another Kingdom. Uh, it's it's excellent. You will love it. And you will let, you will be happy to. All right. If you're listening to or watching this show, there's a very, very good chance that your internet search history is absolutely disgusting and you don't want anybody to see it. Turning on incognito or private mode in Chrome or Safari is not enough to hide it. It doesn't matter how often you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider. ISP can see every single website you've ever visited and they can sell your data to advertisers. That's why I use ExpressVPN to keep my online data secure and private. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP and third-party trackers can't see your online activity and location. It does that by rerouting your connection through a secure encrypted server. In fact, ExpressVPN protects all your data regardless of whether you use incognito mode. ExpressVPN has you covered with easy-to-use apps, for computers and mobile devices so you can use the internet in confidence. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is also the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. Protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust to keep me private. Visit expressvpn.com slash Clavin and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Clavin to learn more, like, for instance, how you spell Clavin. It is K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no <laughs> That's what I was going to say. So today I'm going to do something a little different. Usually what I do is I start off talking about the headlines, talking about politics, and then later on the show, uh, when you're, you know, you're relaxed, you're ready for it, when you're screaming at the speakers, I, I go into my cultural, you know, I, I talk about the culture. And I do that because I know you're listening to the show, so you're probably troglodytes and Philistines. And, you know, when you get to the culture part, you know, you're, you, can't, you have to stop shaking your fist and you turn off and go and listen to something stupid until Knowles' show is over. And, uh, you know, you just don't want to hear it. But I'm going to start with the culture today because I thought that the Grammys, the performance of WAP, actually said something that reveals a lot about the news. It actually tells you what what is going on in the news. And yesterday on Backstage, I made a joke that when I first saw the Beatles, I knew it would lead to WAP. And that is a joke, but it's only half a joke. It's only, it's actually half true. When, when I was a kid, 
my father was one of the big DJs in New York. He was at, at times the biggest DJ in New York, and he worked on a station that played what was then called MOR music, middle of the road. It wasn't rock. It wasn't classics. It was the the kind of old-fashioned American songbook. And these were uh, these were the songs that were written 20 years before I was born, a lot of them. They were written on uh, what on what used to be called, uh, you know, Music Row or uh, um, and, and they were written by immigrants, people who came to America, who loved America, uh, Jews, uh, Irish people, guys like Irving Berlin and George M. Cohen, uh, Cohen and Irving Berlin wrote God Bless America. He wrote White Christmas. They actually wanted to be part of the country. Uh, Tin Pan Alley, it was called. That's what they called it. And uh, George M. Cohen wrote, she's a grand old flag, all kinds of patriotic songs. But the song that exemplified this MOR music to me, and remember, I was a little kid. I was listening to my father in the morning, and, these, and this was the music I heard. And the song that exemplified this for me was Cole Porter's I Get No Kick from Champagne. And Cole Porter was a very upper class guy from Indiana, a gay guy from Indiana who, who brought this kind of sophistication and simplicity to his lyrics. Now, in a lot of these old songs, people don't know this. The part that, that the songwriter often paid the most attention to and brought the most sophistication to and the most cleverness to was the intro, the intro which was rarely actually played on the radio. They usually got right to I Get No Kick from Champagne. So here is Frank Sinatra on a show hilariously called Music for Smokers Only, uh, with smoking a cigarette and singing the intro to I Get No Kick from Champagne. This was the kind of song I listened to as a little kid. And I suddenly turn and see your fabulous face. And then he goes into the main part of the song, I Get No Kick from Champagne. Incredibly sophisticated lyrics, uh, uh, operating at a, on a level of sophistication, portraying sophistication. I'm, I've got, I'm fighting vainly the old ennui. I've got everything in the world. I'm just so bored with life, but I, I want to get a kick from something, but I get no kick from champagne. The original second verse uh, started, some they may go for cocaine, uh, but I think that if I took even one sniff, it would bore me terrifically too. Later, they changed it to perfume from Spain or whatever else they could find to rhyme with it because they found out about uh, cocaine. And the, and the final uh, verse has one of the most sophisticated rhyming schemes uh, ever, uh, where he says, I get no kick in a plane, which it, this was written in the 1930s, so a plane was a pretty um, elite thing to have been in, but I get no kick in a plane. Flying too high with some guy in the sky is my idea of nothing to do. So that's a really uh, passel of rhymes, and yet it sounds very much like natural speech uh, in what must be like 19 or 20 syllables. It's a lot of rhymes. All right, so now I'm nine or 10 years old, and my father comes home one day, and my father really knew, I mean, his business was to know pop music. And he said, boy, oh boy, I just heard the future. I just heard the greatest stuff I've ever heard, this new band out of England called The Beatles, right? Now, I was aware of The Beatles because they were coming to be, when I was about 10, they came on The Ed Sullivan Show, and I, I knew that there was a lot of excitement about it. And as a little kid, you kind of want to be part of the excitement of teenagers, people who are a little older than that. And my father came home and he played this album for me. And here's a song, of course, everybody's heard, just a little taste of it, uh, The Beatles. So... So I, 10 years old, I objected immediately. I said, are we, th this is excellent. We're really going from flying too high with some guy in the sky is my idea of nothing to do to she loves you. Yeah, yeah. I saw her yesterday. Eh? I mean, that, that's really the, that's really an advance. We're going forward in this. I thought it was, I thought it was awful. I thought the, I loved lyrics. I loved sophisticated lyrics. And I just thought there's, you know, it, it was terrible. 
Now, there had always been rock. I mean, there, all my lifetime, and you know, in the 50s, there was rock and roll and there was bebop and all this. But the point is, Sinatra didn't sing it. The kids listened to it, but Sinatra didn't stoop to singing Teen Angel or, or Duke of Earl. But the Beatles, of course, transformed everything. And ultimately, they kind of made Sinatra and his ilk kind of obsolete. What was middle of the road became kind of off the road to the side. Now, here's the thing about the Beatles, and people always misunderstand how I feel about this. They were amazingly talented, amazingly talented. But artists produce a snapshot of their times. The times cause the artist, and then the artist proceed to cause the times. And what I didn't realize, of course, because I was just a little kid, but what I realized later on was we were seeing more than just the end of sophisticated lyrics. We were seeing the end to upper class aspirations. So go back to I Get No Kick from Champagne. Go back to Sinatra. Now, remember, Sinatra was a knockabout guy from Hoboken, New Jersey. He was not, you know, Frank Franklin Sinatra, Francis uh, Sinatra III. He was like this immigrant kid uh, coming up from the because he had a voice coming up from the bottom, coming up from the, the slums, right? But he was talking about, oh, I'm fighting vainly the old ennui, and I see your fabulous face, such an upper-class thing to say that. Not your, your pretty face, but your fabulous face, right? These upper-class tones of Cole Porter. Fred Astaire in his movies, right? He p- always played an ordinary guy, but then he got dressed up in top hat, white tie, and tail. So it was not just, it was not the upper-class value. See, it was aspiration. Because the upper-class people were sometimes portrayed as snobs and people who didn't care and phonies, but their values were sound, right? You wanted to have good manners. You you wanted to be chivalrous. You wanted to have good dress, sophistication, good grammar. Those things were uni- considered universal. And, and the culture, the idea that there was a culture that we all considered good was also considered universal. There's a famous and very funny scene from the TV show MASH, uh, where the kind of nebbish radar wants to impress this very sophisticated girl. And Alan Aldez, Hawkeye, is explaining to him how you can get away. Uh, you know, if she brings up Bach, here's what you do. And here's just this quick clip. If she brings him up, you just smile and you say, Ah, Bach. Ah, Bach. You smile a little bit. Smile. Ah, Bach. Yeah, it's nice. Very good. It's not <laughs> See, the girl doesn't fall for it in the end, but the point is that we all understand. We don't have to say anything. We don't have to talk. We all share this high culture, and that's all you have to say. And what the Beatles rock was was a rejection of that. It was a rejection of aspiring to be elite. They were working class kids from Liverpool and they sang like working class kids. And they also sang, you know, at one point they did a cover of uh, the Chuck Berry song from the fifties called Roll Over Beethoven. And that was saying, you know, Roll Over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news. I got the rocking pneumonia. I need a shot of rhythm and blues. We're pushing the elite out and we're bringing in this new working class sensibility. Peter Sellers, one of the great comic actors of his day, you might know him from Dr. Strangelove. He's kind of forgotten now, but he was really a funny guy. He did a routine where he would play a Shakespearean character and he would recite the lyrics of the Beatles from A Hard Day's Night, which is obviously about a working class guy. He's working the night shift, but he's glad to come home to his beloved. And here's Peter Sellers reciting the lyrics in a Shakespearean, fake Shakespearean voice. It has been a hard Days, night. And I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. <laughs> all right, you make it a hard day's night. The, the joke is that the two attitudes cannot exist together. One is going to win. 
one is going to lose. You cannot cease to aspire to the elites and have the elites continue to take on your art. So that's why Sinatra, when he sang Eleanor Rigby and when he sang something in the way she moved, just sounded ridiculous. He couldn't do it because he was coming from a generation where that aspiration was still in place. What I was seeing, what I was noticing, even as a kid, was that the end of the great American moment was coming, right? The end of the moment when we thought, yes, we have got generation after generation to move, you know, it was flexible, right? We were moving into the elites. You, you could come from Hoboken and become the elites, but you wanted to do that. You didn't want to remain. You didn't want to keep your working class uh, attitudes and say, she loves you, yeah, yeah, and it's been a hard day's night. You wanted to move up to I get no kick from champagne, and that was, that was over. And this doesn't happen in every generation. It happened in our generation because there was a sense that America was not a perfect country, that the things that we had been taught were untrue, that there was racism in America, the Vietnam War was a terrible mistake. And so there was this kind of uh, shift, and, that our, and our fathers and mothers who had been in this great generation, there may have been a feeling, too, that we couldn't live up to them, so we were just going to toss their values out. But this, was, but this was the collapse of that moment. Now, let me pause here before I go on with the music and just remind you of a show I did, I don't know, two or three shows back about Paradise Lost, the famous poem by John Milton, right? The famous poem about the fall of man. Milton participated in the, the English Civil War during which, after which, the king, Charles, was beheaded and Milton approved of his beheading and was almost killed himself when the restoration came and they brought in the new king. And then he wrote Paradise Lost about the rebellion of Satan against the king of heaven and earth. And his point was, and he made it very explicit, was that you can rebel against a human king because a human king is only there because we're sinful, but you can't rebel against the king of heaven. You can't rebel against God because then you become satanic. Then you become evil. And rebelling against God is not just rebelling against the church because Milton was rebelling against the Catholic church. He was a Puritan. It's not rebelling against the church. It's rebelling against the entire idea that nature has an ordained meaning, that men and women have, that it means something that there are men and women, that it means something that we die, that it means something that we live and that we're embodied and that we're gendered and all those things. It's, it's rebelling against the, that entire meaning of life, that other level of meaning of life. And once you start to do that, Milton's point was, you become evil. So you can rebel against human things, like rebelling against the elites, like rebelling against Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra and Cole Porter. You can rebel against them. But once you take it into that next step where you're rebelling against the great elite, the, the, uh, the fact of creation, the godly fact of creation, you become evil and people slip from one to the other. It's the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The American Revolution uh, was a, a revolution against the British elite, but it maintained the values, the aspiration to be an elite culture and a good culture. It just added freedom into the mix, more liberty, more motion into the mix. The French Revolution was a revolution against the church, a revolution against God, a revolution against the entire idea of the culture, and it was a, a paradise lost satanic revolution that all ended the way all those revolutions do with bloodshed and, and murder and people killing each other. So this brings me finally to the Grammys and WAP, right? This song by Cardi B that she sang with Megan the Stallion, I think, where they got on and just really, really disgraced, degraded themselves. They degraded themselves. They acted in this animalistic, uh, hypersexualized way. And of course, the critics think, oh, how, what a wonderful thing this was. But it was just sad. I mean, it was just, it's just pitiful to see someone not without talent, somebody who can dance, somebody who can sing, 
degrading herself to this point and, and, and also showing young girls and young people that this is what you are. You are an animal. You're just a, a sexual uh, creature. Your sex is not involved in any kind of human interplay. It was not, as Matt Walsh said last night, it was not sexy. It was just kind of pitiful. Uh, and here's, I, you know, we can't show too much of it because it's, um, it, it's obscene, but here's just a, a brief clip of it. Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. P word. P word is female genitalia. <laughs> Cardi B looked different, I thought, at the at the uh, Grammys. It may have been the yarmulke. But uh, but look, it's degrading. It's trash music. It's crap lyrics. It's it's almost it's almost a form of grunting uh, when you think that we're coming from, uh, you know, flying too high with some guy in the sky and your fabulous face to this kind of, uh, it's, it's garbage. And it's, it's not, it's not being cranky. Oh, there used to be, everything used to be wonderful. It's just charting a progression of an idea where people start out by rebelling against the elite and they slip into rebelling against their own humanity and the own higher and their, and the higher meaning of creation. So why does this happen? And this is, this is, Ultimately, the point I want to get to, because this is relevant to all of us, this is the Andrew Clavin theory of why this happens, drawn from my own experience, but also drawn from my observation of other people. It's just speculation, but because it's my speculation, we know it's 100% correct. And the way, I, I, the, the way that I see this is that we are all born. We are all born with a sense of the good and the bad. We're all born with a sense of God. We're born with what God, uh, with an idea inside us, implanted inside us, is what good God looks like because we're made in his image. We all have this inside of inside us. You know, a few weeks ago, I got a letter from a woman who said, a mailbag letter from a woman who said, you know, I've been so abused. Uh, how can I trust a God to be good when so much evil has happened to me? And really, the question is always, how would you even know the difference between good or ev and evil if you weren't born with a sense of God within you? And you know, when you see your mother, you know she's supposed to be tender and nurturing and merciful, and you know your father is supposed to be strong and honest and just, and we know that they represent represent something from another place. We know that they represent some mysterious division in the person of God between male and female, certain traits that uh, are important. We know they're supposed to be like this, and we know when they fail. And of course, they all fail. They all, all our parents fail. And so here's the, here's the situation. If you have a good religious upbringing, not just any religious upbringing, but a true religious upbringing, when you start to realize that your parents are human and they're imperfect and they're not the God you came into the world looking for, you can shift that allegiance, not take it away from them. You don't have to take it away from them, but see through them to the good God that they represent, both mother and father, both male and female that they represent. If you don't have that, if you don't have that, there's nothing. Once you rebel against them, you can rebel against anything. You're just into the darkness. You are going to establish your own self. You're going to define your own self. You're going to define the meaning of nature. You're going to define the meaning of gender. You're going to define all those things. And then you've gotten into paradise lost territory and you slip. You slip through into evil. You slip through into evil. And this is the thing. You, you start out by saying, uh, you know, screw your top hat white tie and tails, and you end up stripped naked, shouting about your genitalia like an animal, right? And that's, that's the progression. Not because you rebelled against an elite that has failed, but because you failed to see that what that elite failed to do was to represent the good God who orders nature to his liking and to his goodness. And so you slip through the true rebellion, the fair rebellion, into a rebellion against creation itself. And that's the place where we are. And that's the way, that is the point of view 
from which I want to look at the news this week. Now, if there's one thing I know, it's that you have to diversify your investments. And I know this because my wife said to me, you have to diversify your investments. And she's always right. Did you know that gold is predicted to hit $3,000 in the next year? Under the last Democratic president, gold went from $700 to $1,900 in two years. That's almost 300% growth. What better way to protect yourself from the imminent tax hikes under our new president than with a gold investment? Monetary Gold is a precious metals company whose biggest focus is helping savers protect their portfolio by setting up self-directed IRAs. They only offer precious metal products that are IRS approved. Call 888-201-7717 to get your free gold guide. Monetary Gold is here to help you take advantage of a sound investment strategy that will help you diversify your portfolio. They've been in business for over 20 years with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Monetary Gold is accredited with both the Better Business Bureau and consumer affairs. Precious metals are the place that people turn when things are looking unsteady. (laughs) And you may feel that way now. Call Monetary Gold at 888-201-7717 to get your free gold guide. So let me show you how when you slip from rebelling against an elite, which can be a fair thing to do. And certainly right now, our elite is in complete failure mode. Our elite has totally failed to uphold its part of the bargain, which is to uphold the values of our country and the values values that have been handed down to them. They're basically our elite are... If they're not incompetent, they're locusts. They're actually just devouring everything that was built and given to them. Uh, So it's totally fair to rebel against them. But when you move from that to rebelling against creation itself, you become stupid uh, and you become evil. And we see this. There are two murders that I've been following this week. I know everybody's talking about the uh, the Atlanta murder, but there's another one that was taking place in England that really was interesting. And one of the things we all find is this absolutely disgusting rush to claim the dead for your cause, to stand on the body of murdered men and women and claim that somehow this establishes your cause to be the just cause. The left, it's always the left who starts it, but the right as always plays along. And, you know, because we don't own the media, because we don't own the culture, they can do it with a lot more power, a lot more force than we can. It's disgusting. It's a disgusting way to react to grief. It is basically standing on the bodies of murdered people and trying to make turn them into a political cause. And it really, but also illustrates the stupidity, the stupidity of what we're looking at. So there's a young woman, 33-year-old marketing executive. Her name is Sarah Everard. This is in England. Uh, she was uh, mo- walking home um, and a- at night in London, and she went missing. And a police officer, Wayne Cousins, a metropolitan police officer, has now been arrested and charged with her murder, right? And this has caused an outcry about women's safety and men's evil, basically. Uh, everything went wrong with this woman. She took, she took all the precautions that women are supposed to take. She stayed on bright streets. She phoned her boyfriend on her way. She wore bright colors. All the, thing girls are told, all the things girls are told to do to stay safe. And she not only got killed, she got killed by a cop, allegedly. The person who's charged is a cop. So what, what greater nightmare could there be? 
The talk immediately devolved into the evil of men. They even at one point floated the idea of having a curfew for men. It's all about men. And women are upset that people are saying, hey, you know, you have to be careful. You have to be careful uh, because they're saying, well, it's, it's no fair to tell us to be careful when the problem is men. Why do we have to change our ways when it's really men who should change their ways? So here's a montage of some of the commentary that's going around in England. Women know abduction and murder is just the worst end of a spectrum of everyday male threat to women. Killed women are not vanishingly rare. Killed women are common. Women are really responding to this by recognising how similar it is to their own experiences. We all have those daily experiences of monitoring our safety, of carrying our keys between our fingers. And yet we know that that's actually no barrier to preventing harm from happening to us. Generally, I think there is a, a you know, a well-founded fear or that, that women aren't being adequately protected by the criminal justice system. And that is why so many, um, so many women do not have confidence in it. There is a need for a wholesale attitude change, really, uh, at every level, uh, with public education as well, to really start tackling uh, victim-blaming and misogynistic society. The continuing figures and the continuing experiences of women tell you that there's something still seriously wrong. So, so London has even, uh, actually it's England and Wales have declared that misogyny, misogyny, uh, the hatred of women will be treated as a hate crime. Uh, if they actually take that seriously, there are going to be a lot of women in prison, most of them feminists. But the thing, the idea that men have to change their ways, okay, is a, is a problem. It's, it's a pro- it, it means that nothing is going to be done except the torment of little boys, right? That's what mean. That's what's going to happen. The reason is, is men don't prey on women. Evil men prey on women, and evil men are not going to change their ways. Why? Because they're evil, right? This guy. This is not going to stop. This attitude is not going to stop a single crime against women. Now, don't get me wrong. Most men have done something bad to women, especially in their youth. Uh, we all have. I certainly have things that I, I t- terribly regret. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes thinking about these things, and and obviously that. That is a, a, a terrible thing, and you try to be a much better person. But if men change, but most men, including me, and I think most, I think this is true of most men, if I see a woman walking ahead of me on a dark street, I cross the street so she won't be anxious. I cross the street so she'll, she'll feel safer. If she were attacked, I like to think that even at my ripe old age, I would go over and beat the guy up with my, my walking stick, you know? I, I still feel this way, and I feel that most men feel this way. So if men change their ways, right, if men change their ways, it's not going to be good for women. It's that they are, it's if evil men change their ways and they won't. So they're talking about evil and the idea of evil has disappeared into the psychologizing of people, right? So we can't just say, oh, this guy is evil. It's got to have something else. Why? Because all of us have evil in us. All of us have sin in us. And if if you have, if you start to acknowledge the idea of evil, you start to acknowledge the idea of your sin and your shame. And people spend, I would say, about 90% of their mental energy trying to avoid shame. That's what they try to avoid because we all feel it and we all know it. So instead of having evil, you've invented, they've invented these racial and sexual categories that, of course, convey power to the powerful. And that's why they take these murders, these tragedies. as a woman who's dead. She's, her life has been snuffed out by this evil guy. And instead of saying, well, you know, evil is a problem, so maybe 
Maybe, you know, good and evil define things like actions and ideas. Maybe it's not all right uh, to, you know, the, the big the big upsurge in women's violence and the reason this is coming up and the reason this is causing this hysteria, the big upsurge is because of the influx of Muslim immigrants. We talked about Ayan, to Ayan Hirsi Ali about that a, a couple of shows ago. And that is the problem that they're facing. And that's why the hysteria being faced on, turned on this guy, because he's a white man, so they can say it out loud. But still, still, it's political. And they're not facing the, the fact that ideas are evil. Actions are evil. We don't know the heart of a man. We can't judge the heart of a man, but we can say his ideas and his actions are evil. But they're afraid to do that because you're not allowed in, under the left, this new leftist regime, you're not allowed to say there's such a thing because that is giving meaning to creation. And that's what they're trying to avoid because they're trying to avoid shame. You're not supposed to be fat shamed. You're not supposed to be slut shamed. Nobody says, you know what? Uh, maybe if you're really obese, maybe you should be a little bit of shame. Maybe if you're treating your body like, you know, a toy for men, maybe you should be, maybe, you know, shame would be a good thing. No, you're not allowed to do that. So we have to find these other categories instead of the categories that we have to judge. Now the murder here, the same exact thing is happening. The suspect, uh, went in and killed eight people uh, at three massage parlors in the Atlanta area. And he told investigators, well, here's what the sheriff uh, says he said. He made indica uh, ind indicators that um, uh, he has uh, some some issues, uh, potentially uh, sexual addiction, and um, uh, may have frequented some of these places in the past. But the working theory is a sexual addiction issue end, rather than a, a, a racial profile. Uh, uh, it, during our interviews, uh, we asked that specific question, and uh, and that did not appear to be uh, the motive. So what if you looked at this as as a question of sin and evil, right? What if you said, oh, here's a guy who's caught up in our pornographic culture. Uh, here are Korean women who, for some reason, are being shoveled into the, into sex slavery. I mean, come on. Nobody grows up thinking, oh, I want to work in a massage parlor so I can give men pleasure. These are women who have been sold in some way or tricked or imprisoned into sex slavery. Why is that happening? Why, you know, how is that uh, not? They keep, they keep calling these things spas. Not spas, they're whorehouses, you know, and a guy is is caught up in that. And it's not it's not the women's fault, certainly. They're obviously victims. And the man is is obviously in the grip of some terrible, uh, it's not an addiction, that's ridiculous. It's he's, you know, caught up in the coils of desire. He's caught up in the coils of sin. But because we're not allowed to talk about that, because that entails shame for all kinds of people, including ourselves, including ourselves, it, it requires us to look at our society in terms of its good and evil ideas, and instead of in terms of these, these false uh, constructs, these anti-creation constructs of the color of your face or, uh, you know, men are evil because they behave like men and women are good because they behave like, you know, instead of this kind of nonsense that we're all talking, we are get, escaping, escaping from this idea. Listen to the new, way the New York Times played this. Now, you have to understand there's a political motive here for interpreting this as anti-Asian hate crimes. There has been an upsurge in Asian hate crimes. And of course, the left wants to say this is because Donald Trump called the Wuhan flu the Wuhan flu. That's why there's an uptick in Asian hate crimes. I don't know if that played into it. Something like 27% of these crimes are committed by uh, black males against Asians. And, and the Asians have been complaining about this, but they can't get any um, traction off those complaints because nobody wants to say, oh, this is a problem in the black community who seem to be reacting to the fact that Asians come into their neighborhoods, work hard, build businesses, dislike them because they're in high crime areas and are held up as a um, 
you know, as a model minority. That's what they call them, the model minority. So the Asians, a lot of these hate crimes are coming from black people. A lot of them, of course, are coming from the Yale admissions office, which won't let Asians in because somehow if their uh, their population turns to Asian, I'm not sure what the rest of that sentence is. I'm not sure what they're afraid of, but they insist, they insist that they should be able to keep out Asians. So there is this, on the left, there is this real animosity toward Asians because the, this is the left speaking, not me. They, they say they're, they're almost white. They're really included in being white because they work hard and all this. It's just, it's just a way of degrading black people, as the left always does. So here's the way the New York Times played this. A former newspaper uh, tried to lie the narrative into the real story. The headline is Georgia killings deepen fears of rising anti-Asian hate in U.S. They said the suspect has told authorities that the attacks were an attempt to remove the temptation of his self-described sex addiction and not motivated by racism. A former roommate of his at a halfway house said he had tried to end his addiction as recently as early 2020, but had continued uh, going to massage parlors for sex. Still, community leaders said it could not be ignored that most of those killed in the rampage had been of Asian descent. Why not? Why couldn't it be ignored? Why couldn't it be ignored? Well, it couldn't be ignored because they want to avoid, they want to use the killing disgustingly for political purposes, but they don't want to use it for actually facing the state of the of our society and the state of the human soul. That is what they're trying to avoid. They're trying to avoid the shame of acknowledging the state of the human soul. There's one here. This was today in the in the Times. Uh, people are literally debating. Says this is one. Uh, Asian American feminist, right? She says people on here literally are debating if this was a misogynistic attack against women or a racist attack against Asians. What if, wait for it, it was both. Wow, she hit the jackpot on that. Now, I don't understand why people aren't asking if you want to make it racial, why not? Why are Korean girls being roped into this sex slavery? And and right-wingers who are fools, where you know, right-wingers obviously are are fools. They fall into this debate all the time. They they try and come up with their own with their own racial narrative. So they say, oh, well, it's blacks, you know, we're attacking Asians and all this. I don't understand why we can't just say this is an act of evil. How did it become evil? It was because of these desires. It was because the uh, society basically encourages him into this, uh, lures him into this. It would happen anyway. It's always going to happen. This is the thing. It's always going to happen. Women are always going to be uh, in danger because they are smaller than men and men feel lust. That's why. That is why it's going to happen. The thing to do would be to teach the society, to teach the society that we need chivalry, that we need goodness, that we need religion. You know, this is why, this is why conservatives, see, see, people who think they're going to reinvent the moral law have gone astray. I hear this all the time. I hear smart people, right and left, they think, oh, wait, now we found out that the moral, all, all this time we thought there was a moral law where men had to look out for women and protect women. But now we know, now we've really figured this out. If you invent, reinvent the moral law, stop because you're wrong. There's a reason the beaten path was beaten. The beaten path was beaten for a reason because people learn things from their experience. The reason conservatives support strong mom and dad families and religion is not because it's nice or socially acceptable or it's because the way it's always done. It's because it gives you the resources to find the true path to yourself and your God-given destiny after your parents fail you. And hopefully they don't fail you catastrophically with abuse. But when they turn out to be human, you want to say, oh, the devotion I was looking to apply to them has to be applied through them to their creator. Once you lose that, then you revolt against the elites, as we've had in this country for the last 60, 70 years. You revolt against the 
the elites becomes a revolt against creation because you can't see the difference. You can't see the difference between the elites and creation. And then you slip into evil. And this is what this is. It is evil. It is evil. These murders are evil, but it's also evil to seize upon these bodies, to climb on these dead bodies, to climb on the grief of their parents, the grief of their loved ones, and declare that somehow this is uh, affirmation of your political attempt. So it's uh, of your political uh, motives and desires. So it starts with an evil action and it ends with an evil action. And we're in a circle of evil. And that's, that is the result. That is the result of losing, losing the structure which leads you from your parents to God. If you're like me, and you probably are because I'm talking to myself, if you're like me, you use the internet without thinking about it. I never think about the fact that people are probably spying on me, stealing everything from me. The IRS issued an urgent warning about a new scam to steal the electronic filing identification numbers from tax professionals over email. Who thinks of this stuff? Criminals. Cyber criminals can use this information to file fraudulent tax returns. Tax professionals should be aware of the latest phishing scams, but individuals also have to take steps to protect themselves. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. We put our information at risk on the internet. There are bad guys out there looking for it, looking to use it, looking to steal it. That's why there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, like your social security number for sale on the dark web, for instance. If they detect your information has potentially been compromised, they will send you an alert. I've gotten them. They're really, really useful. It is a good, safe feeling to know that someone is there. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours with LifeLock Identity Theft Protection. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year by going to lifelock.com slash Claven. That's lifelock.com slash Claven to save 25% off. The problem is, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yes, but how? Oh, how? Please tell us how do you spell Claven? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. So this brings me to the Biden crap fest, because this is a uh, terrible presidency so far. It really is terrible. And what makes it terrible is not the leftism. It's not the leftism. It is the commitment to failure. It is the commitment to continuing to fail. We have a doddering old man throwing your grandchildren's money at failing leftist bromides that are slow motion socialism. So like all socialism, they drive you bankrupt. Like all socialism, they drive your country into slavery and bankruptcy. They're just doing it a little more slowly than the Soviet Union did because the Soviet Union did it full bore. So it took 70 years, you're gone. Most bad ideas, they get 70 years and then suddenly everything falls apart. This is maybe taking a little longer because they haven't been able to install it through revolutionary means, but they've put it in there bit by bit. They just passed this $1.9 trillion bailout, right? It's a ba- and, and that's what it is. You know, they, they have called it, the Democrats have called it the furthest reaching social welfare bill since the Great Depression. And Republicans say the same thing. But what it really does is it sends your grandchildren's money to bail out union pensions that bankrupt cities. You know, how do you get union pensions? The union comes in and says, we want a raise. And the mayor says, well, I can't give you a raise because that'll bust the budget. And the union says, well, give us bigger pensions and you'll be out of office by the time it breaks the budget. And the guy, the mayor says, oh, okay, if I'll be out of office, it won't hurt my political career. And he gives them a pension that the city's never going to be able to pay. You know, and then finally some 
a tough Republican comes in and says, you're not going to get your pension. So they're sending money, sending your grandchildren's money uh, to pay out the pensions, to bail out Obamacare. Uh, they, they have a temporary r- raise in the uh, children's, um, you know, the the children's relief that you get if you have children, but you can't afford to have children. So they're paying you basically to have children out of wedlock. That's supposed to be temporary. But of course, what's going to happen when the Republicans say, OK, it's temporary, it's running out. Let's just leave it go. It's going to be Republicans try to take money out of the mouths of children. That's what it's going to be. You know, they they have extension of jobless benefits because the government shutdown was such a miserable, uh, bad idea that has put people out of jobs. It's all pain using your grandchildren's money. Remember, this money comes from somewhere. They have. They now have this new uh, theory that the money can just be printed forever. You know, that's that's got to work out well. What could possibly go wrong with that? So it's all about this failure. It is all about this incredible failure. And meanwhile, meanwhile, nine hundred million dollar for a nine hundred million dollar Ford plant project was pulled from Ohio and moved to Mexico. Would that have happened under Trump? You bet it wouldn't have, because Trump would have shown up at their door screaming bloody murder. So they're. Uh, propping up local governments that have failed. They're doing all this stuff with your children's money. And meanwhile, meanwhile, they're talking about, you know, the, the COVID emergency is passing. The, the COVID disease, the Chinese virus is not going to go away. It's going to be around. But obviously, now that I personally uh, have been vaccinated, you're all safe because you're all living in my imagination. So if I'm not going to die, you will continue to be alive. So that's that's starting to go away. But they have, but the Democrats have, as they always have, they always have uh, an investment in crisis and in panic because it's in crisis and in panic that we tend to cede the power of the people to the government, which obviously is the whole point. So Biden made this speech at the one-year anniversary of when the WHO declared, finally came out and said, oh, this is a pandemic. They'd been lying up to that. So the one-year anniversary of them telling the truth, which I guess is something to celebrate. And Biden makes this uh, speech. It was just incredible. Uh, This is cut 10, I think, right? We do this together. By July the 4th, there's a good chance you... Your families and friends will be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. That doesn't mean large events with lots of people together, but it does mean small groups will be able to get together. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special. So the reason this is funny for a bunch of reasons. One, it's funny because he doesn't even know that people are already getting together. People are ignoring them. You know, Florida is basically open. And now even some of the mainstream media are admitting that Ron DeSantis got this right. He took reasonable precautions. He didn't sell it. He didn't sit around and say, like some of these right wing blowhards, this thing doesn't exist and masks don't work. He, he was absolutely responsible. He opened the schools with precaution. The schools have not been super spreaders. They've now done that study. The, the economy hasn't been hurt as badly. Their death toll is much, much better than New York State, where the great heroic Andrew Cuomo was chasing girls around the, the desk. You know, do you like to date older men? You know, I mean, that's what that's what Andrew Cuomo was doing with the mainstream media was singing hallelujah. Ron DeSantis was handling this responsibly. It was all wrong. Everything about it was wrong. And now he's telling us, oh, you know, if you're very good, if you're very good, you might be able to meet, not with big people, not a lot of big crowds. 
smiles for Independence Day, because after all, Independence Day is not to celebrate your freedom from people like Joe Biden. It's to celebrate the fact that maybe you can creep out of your house wearing six masks and have a small barbecue where you all face it. I mean, Anthony Fauci, by the way, and I have it on pretty good authority that Fauci is a good doctor. He's just a bad politician that once he got swept up into politics, once he was on TV every night, he sort of became a buffoon. He fell into that thing. But I mean, he at this point sounds like a crazy man. It's like, yeah, you should have you have doubly vaccinated and you're wearing six masks. You should be able to sit with your grandmother if she's facing east and wearing a bandana around her face and dead. You know, <laughs> it's, I mean, at this point, it's impossible to understand the word he's saying. The other part of this thing that is funny. Oh, then then, by the way, he threatened uh, Joe Biden threatened. If you don't if you don't obey, obey or we're going to have to shut you down again. We're going to shut everybody down again. So it says in the copy here that I'm supposed to riff on how rested I feel when the alarm goes off the morning after a deep sleep. I have no idea what that could possibly feel like, but I know how comfortable it is to sleep on a Helix mattress because I lie awake all night and I think, this is really comfortable. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. It doesn't matter how you sleep or like me, if you don't sleep, With Helix, there's no more confusion, no more compromising. Helix Sleep is rated the number one mattress by GQ and Wired and CNN. Called it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. Go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Take the two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, or if you're me, the best lying awake night of your life. I took the quiz. I was matched to the Helix Midnight Lux. The Midnight Lux is medium firm, designed for side sleepers or people who just lie awake. Helix mattresses have a 10-year warranty. They're made right in America, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they will pick it up for you for free if you don't love it, but you will love it. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Get up to $200 off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Sleep on the mattress I lay awake on. If you know how to spell Clavin, it is K-L-A. <laughs> so true. It is just so true. The media was hilarious. Molly Hemingway, the, the best of all possible Mollies, uh, wrote in The Federalist this thing about how incredibly shameful the administration told the media, describe this as a hopeful speech. You know, you might be able to meet with your dead grandmother on Independence Day if you're very good and you're not good. We're going to shut you down again. Just an embar- it was an embarrassing speech. And they write, oh, another reminder in The Washington Post, another reminder how Trump failed at the responsibility of soothing the fears of a rattled nation. Uh, politi- Politico, it's hard to imagine any other contemporary politician making the speech Joe Biden did Thursday night, both channeling our collective sorrow and reminding us that there is life after grief if you're very, very good and obey and obey. You know, it's just, I mean, this is the failure of the least. The Biden crap fest is just, it's sad, you know, it's sad that they put this doddering old man in because because they thought he would be the face on their leftist policies, but their leftist policies are just bailing out old leftist policies. Their leftist policies are nothing new. They're just bailing out policies that didn't work with your, your grandchildren's money. Plus, plus, it does not matter. You can wear 16 masks. You can wear 120 masks. You can sit with your back. You can watch your grandmother die through a glass pane. You can never go out of your room again. If people are storming across the border, and they are, if they're storming across in record numbers, 
it doesn't matter. They're going to bring it right back in again. You know, there's a possibility that if at the beginning of this, they had shut the borders and shut down everything for maybe six weeks, they could have beaten it. They could have beaten it back. There's a possibility that would have worked, but they didn't do any of those things. And all the, this is true of all the free countries. The free countries don't want to be locked down. They don't want you to tell them what to do. So all the free countries did worse than the slave countries. The slave countries are going to have a better time, an easier time shutting things down than they did. But it's Biden who invited these people across the border. Even when he was campaigning, he said they should come. Here's a clip, a flashback of Biden saying they should surge at the border. What I would do as president is several more things because things have changed. I would, in fact, make sure that there is we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's who we are. It's like when these people, when they, they say, well, well, if the children come, we'll take care of them. Are you, are you joking? You know, these children are being sent away by their parents. They're being put in the hands of coyotes. They're being raped. They're being murdered. This is a, t- you know, and, and Trump, Trump came up with a, fi- finally came up with a solution. It took him a while, but finally he started stopping people on the other side of the border and it worked. And to their absolute disgrace, because on top of, Um, on top of failing, on top of paying with your grandchildren's money for their failures, on top of calling you racist and every kind of phobic if you point out that they are failing, they have to lie. And Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki, she, it's, I feel bad for her. I really do. You know, people were saying last night on uh, backstage, well, maybe we shouldn't feel bad for her. But, you know, I I always feel bad for the press secretary of every president because they always end up uh, just lying to the the public. And as uh, Candace Owens pointed out on backstage, Jen Psaki probably isn't even talking to Biden because who could? Who could talk to him? And she goes out and this this is what she says about the border crisis, which she accidentally called a crisis for the first time. We recognize this is a big problem. Uh, The last administration uh, left us a dismantled uh, and unworkable system. And like any other problem, uh, we are going to do everything we can to solve it. So that's the Obama playbook, right? Everything that goes wrong uh, was the previous president's fault. Everything that goes right when Donald Trump comes into office was actually Obama to Obama's credit. They're going to keep playing that playbook until the thing collapses because you can't just keep throwing make-believe money at something and think it's going to go on. They tried that in the Soviet Union. It obviously doesn't work. It's not going to work here. It's, it's just a question of time. What they're counting on, what they're counting on is the boom that the economists say is coming. Economists say a boom is coming because there was was a false depression. It was a lockdown, a government-caused depression. It's going to go away, and there's going to be the boom that follows. And what they're hoping is that'll just come right for the timing of the election. And the way God feels about us right now, it would not surprise me if they were right. The other day on All Access, you know, we do these wonder. If you're not an All Access subscriber and you're missing this, you're missing really good shows where you can ask questions. It's like a sort of ask me anything thing, and I do it once a week. Someone asked me, how do you become wise? And I said, well, the first thing is you got to read. Reading is like the little nubs on towels because it increases the surface area of your knowledge. And you have to read seriously and read for self-improvement. But I said that there are two big mistakes that smart people make. And I said, one of them is that they think they have to be right. They think that being right is the path to wisdom. But the path to wisdom is not in being right. The path to wisdom is to, is to admitting you're wrong quickly, uh, is to saying you're wrong and accepting the shame. See, this is the thing. People are avoiding that shame of saying, yes, I, it was wrong for me to be a slut. It was wrong for me to get this fat. I have to change this. It's my fault. I take this on. If you can't do that, and a, a lot of smart people spend a lot of time and energy explaining to you why they were right when they were wrong. And the other thing is rewriting the 
the moral order. We talked about that before, but right now, the left cannot simply admit, and leftist thinkers, and there are leftist thinkers, leftist intellectuals simply cannot say this does not work. They can be upset about inequality. They should be upset. I think the right should start to think harder about inequality. They can be upset about racism. They can be upset about the poor. Those are all fair subjects to be upset about, but their solutions do not work. And instead of throwing my grandchildren's money and their children's money at these problems to prop them up until the whole structure collapses, stop, admit you were wrong, and start having discussions among all of us about how we can fix these problems and go forward. They just can't do it and they won't do it. So here I am in Nashville while my home is somewhere else. What do you do? One good thing you can do is put a ring doorbell and ring security cameras on your house. So much is happening at our front door. But the one thing that hasn't changed during these days of lockdown is you want to be able to see who's out there, who is out there. You want to be able to check whether you're lying in bed and don't want to get up, whether somebody is ringing the doorbell and you're not there, whether somebody is hanging out and you're not there. It's a perfect time to upgrade your doorstep with a Ring video doorbell. With Ring, you can see and speak to whoever's at the door from anywhere right on your phone. You'll never miss a visitor, whether it's your neighbor, your dinner, your groceries, or somebody you don't want there. You can keep those packages and deliveries safe. With motion detection, you'll get notified even if they don't ring the doorbell. If someone stops by or something's going on, Ring lets you know. Right now, get a special offer on the Ring welcome kit at ring.com slash Clavin. It comes with Ring's video doorbell 3 and Chime Pro, the perfect way to upgrade your front door and start your Ring experience. Go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. If anyone comes to your door and looks suspicious, ask him, how do you spell Clavin? If he knows the answer to that question, call the police immediately. The, the path into deeper and, and deeper sin, I'm just going to use the word, why, why uh, pretty it up? The path is always not accepting your shame, not correcting your mistakes, but more and more rationales. And what do you have to do if you're wrong? And the left is just wrong. They're wrong about their, they're not always wrong about their concerns. I mean, some of their concerns are absolutely valid. They are wrong about the, in their rebellion against creation. That is what they're wrong about. They are not wrong in their rebellion against the old elites. They're wrong in their rebellion against creation. The thi only thing you can do if you're wrong is lie and force other people not to tell the truth. And that's what we're seeing. That's the cancel culture is forcing other people not to tell the truth. And the lying is what has happened to the press. The press is just lying. I got to go back. I opened with this, but I got to go back to this Washington Post story because it's such an unbelievable failure of journalism and nobody is going to be accountable for it. Nobody's going to be disciplined for it. Nobody is going to get fired. Nobody's going to show shame. Nobody's really even going to admit it. it's just going to be gone. This find the fraud story that came out, you'll remember, in January after the election was that Trump pressured uh, the Georgia elections investigator to find the fraud. Here's, here's just a part of it from Amy Gardner at The Washington Post. President Trump urged Georgia's lead elections investigator to, quote, find the fraud in a lengthy December phone call saying the official would be a national hero, according to an individual familiar with the call who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the conversation. And remember, I've always told you this, the whole problem with an anonymous source is you know the source has a motive, 
but you don't know what it is. You do not know what it is. And that's the same for the journalist. The, what, the way you're supposed to use an anonymous source, and I've been a reporter, I've used anonymous sources, is you, you then go to the person in the know, the official, and hold up the information to him or her and see if they confirm it. That's how you get a story. So the, the interesting thing about this is not just that the Washington Post blew a huge story accusing the president of, of basically of committing, uh, you know, a, a felony of basically trying to overturn the election dishonestly. It's not just that. It's that the entire media had the same source and confirmed the story. Here's, here are big media outlets confirming the Washington Post story. President Trump personally called Georgia's lead in elections investigator and demanded that person produce evidence which didn't exist and, quote, find the fraud, adding that if they did so, they would be a, quote, national hero. The Washington Post reported yesterday that President Trump called a Georgia election investigator and pressured him to, quote, find the fraud. And President Trump apparently pressured an election investigator to find the fraud. Again, not the phone call out of Georgia, another one. We now know of um, a second, there's so much, uh, a second call from President Trump to Georgia officials about trying to overturn the election. Uh, he reportedly told uh, an elections investigator in Cobb County to, quote, find the fraud, and then that person would be a national hero. Sorry. I mean, and now, and now, basically a little correction in the Washington Post. It's the story has been covered, but but that's it. It's it's as if somebody had said, you know, you whatever your name is, Joe Smith, uh, you know, you're a serial killer, and then three months later they said, uh, no, you're not. It's, you know, uh, sorry, I made a mistake. You know, it, 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 there's absolutely no. It, this went into the impeachment trial. This was part of the impeachment. Uh, trial in the House of Representatives. Madeline Dean used it in the House impeachment hearings, quoting the Washington Post story. Here's Madeline Dean. A few weeks later, on December 23rd, Trump called the chief investigator for the, for the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, who was conducting an audit, an audit of the signature matching procedures for absentee ballots. Trump urged him, find the fraud and claimed the official would be a national hero if he did. Let's call this what it is. He was asking the official to say there was evidence of fraud when there wasn't any. An anonymous source story that turned out to be... Here, let's play the tape. Here's, here's a, a, I can't play the whole tape, but here's the conversation between uh, Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Francis Watson. And, and it gives the tone of what he was saying to her. And I want everything but Georgia. And, I, you know, and I want Georgia. I know that. By a lot, and the people know it. And uh, you know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. And I hope you join that uh, that uh, because if you, uh, you know, I hope you're going back two years as opposed to just checking, you know, one against the other because that would just be sort of a a, uh, a signature check that didn't mean anything. But if you go back two years, and if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable. The, the dishonesty. I mean, I mean, the thing is, the New York Times wrote w during the midterms before the presidential election, during the midterms, they wrote story after story about the mess. Uh, I think was their word, the mess in Georgia, uh, the election mess, 
the possibility of fraud. They didn't like the Dominion machines. They thought they could be hacked. All the things that Trump ended up saying. But of course, then they flipped and they did that ridiculous story where they called up the secretary of states of every state. And by golly, there was not one fraudulent vote in the entire United States. And if you said it was, you were kicked off YouTube. If you said it was, you were kicked off Twitter. You know, you've got to lie and you've got to silence the people who tell the truth. And once you do that, you're in Orwell's oppressive, oppressive land. And that's kind of what we're moving into. And people keep saying, oh, well, you know, Amazon has the right to not sell books. Oh, and YouTube has the right to kick you off. But basically, it's big tech gutting, gutting your free speech rights. So what you have to have a press, you have to have a press that is essentially Pravda, that is lying all the time. And when somebody says a simple truth that something is failing, if you can't accept the failure, you got to shut them down. Tucker Carlson, to his credit, went after, went after woke rules in the military because woke rules are a, they're a category error. They're a false way of assembling people. You want people in the military, you want the most lethal fighters, you want the toughest guys, you want the biggest guys, the meanest guys. That's what you want in the military. And he went up and, and started talking about the rules they're having for the woke military, while China basically, or and I have to say like Trump, China is building up their military, really ready to take us out after they go into Taiwan. And here's what Tucker Carlson said the military is doing. One of those recommendations was to, quote, remove aptitude test barriers that adversely impact diversity. Separately, the Pentagon is now reportedly considering lowering fitness standards for female recruits. The military had adopted a gender-neutral test that scored men and women on the same basis, the idea being they would have to fight the same wars. Turns out, though, that far more than half of the women who took the test failed it, so they apparently are ditching that. The question is whether or not this helps diversity. Will it help us win wars and defend the country? That's Tucker basically defending creation. That is him defending reality, defending the fact that we need certain kinds of people to fight wars, that pregnant women can't fight wars. And of course, of course, because this is obviously a failure, because this would be admitting that their entire philosophy, their entire approach is a, a rebellion against creation, the military breaking 200 plus years of policy and violating a true, true Republican principle. When I say Republican, I mean with a small r, which is that the military should not get involved in political fights. The military went after Tucker Carlson. Here is the guy from Space Command uh, complaining uh, that Tucker Carlson's never been in the military. I understand some comments were made yesterday and I watched the clip that Mr. Carlson produced as he referred to pregnant women in the military. I'll remind everyone that his opinion, which he has a, a right to, is based off of actually zero days of service in the armed forces. Let's get back to work. Let's remember that those opinions were made by an individual who has never served a day in his life. Let's remember that's all about drama TV. God bless America. Semper Fidelis. <laughs> an ad hominem attack on a journalist, on a journalist making a giving an opinion, giving his point from the military. And it was widespread. It was all over Twitter. Kurt Schlichter, a military veteran, uh, wrote a column where he said, the one thing you can say about Tucker Carlson is he has won as many wars in the last 20 years as the American military, and he has lost fewer wars <laughs> than the American military. The American military is actually getting weaker. It really is. We have all the equipment we need. We used to, 20, 20 years ago, 25 
25 years ago, we were incredibly lethal. But at the same time, the Chinese are building up their Navy, ready to sink our ships. The same time they were getting ready to go into Taiwan and, and dare us to come after them. We're fiddling around with making pregnant women flight suits for women in the Air Force. And when somebody comes out and tells the truth, he has to be attacked. He has to be attacked. So principle goes by the board. The idea of a military run by civilians goes by the board. The idea that journalists should be left alone by the military, all of that has to go. It has to. It has to. You follow this bad idea because there are good ideas and bad ideas. You follow a bad idea down the road, you know where it ends up. It ends up the same place that the road to good intentions end up. And it's where they're heading. It's the end of the left, really. That's what we're watching. But it's just a question of how long they can prop it up with your grandkids' money. So the weather's getting nice. I've been vaccinated, so you're safe because you're living in my imagination and I'm now immortal. This is not the time, if your car is broken, to go sit in your car pretending to drive to an auto parts store and then stand online at the auto parts store you aren't even at because your car isn't working, waiting for someone to not help you because he doesn't exist. With rockauto.com, not only can you get your auto car parts right on your computer, but you get to say rockauto.com. Man, the women, they swoon. Women don't even know how to swoon anymore. But if you say rockauto.com, not only will you teach the women in your life how to swoon, but you will be able to get the car parts you need right in your computer. rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Their site is very easy to use and their prices are always low. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need at rockauto.com. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right Clavin. And you got to say it the same way or it doesn't work. You got a Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know how we sent you. And you got to spell it like that, too. You got a K-L-A-V-A-N. That's right. But say it like you mean it. So as you know, we're always making pathetic, desperate attempts to class up the show, and you'd think almost nothing would work. But this time, this time, I think we finally made it. We have Candace Owens, who hopefully now and forevermore will be, I can simply introduce her as the host of Candace, a new talk show that will premiere right after my show at 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, and some god-awful time in California. Hello. It's so good to see you. Welcoming myself to the Daily Wire, you're going to see me a lot more. I, I, we're thrilled. Yeah. We are. We are thrilled. And I, and I have to. I was just saying off camera that I'm so rooting for the show. I think it is a really important thing. You've been rooting for me since the beginning. I have been rooting for, him, yeah. for you since the beginning. Absolutely true. So I, we're going to talk about politics. But before that, I, we were on backstage together, and I have some personal questions that actually came into my mind as I was sitting there. I mean, you know, I'm a novelist, and I'm thinking. I was thinking to myself, I'm writing the character Candace Owens. And five years ago, you're on YouTube, mouthing off like everybody on YouTube. And now the curtain opens and you're sitting on this fairly, you know, this major talk show that is really different than anything that's ever been on television. What is going through that character's mind when that happens? Oh, wow. It's funny. It's, it's so difficult to pause. It feels like it, everything has been a rocket ship since yeah. I was on YouTube and doing my first video and just saying something different, I guess, just saying something different as a black American. Right. Um, and also being, I think, more audacious. I always say there were so many more 
intelligent black conservatives that have come before me. Condoleezza Rice, right? Like yeah, Dr. Yeah. Condoleezza Rice, Dr. Thomas Sowell. Well, um, more intelligent yeah, than all right, of us. Than yeah. all of us, right? <laughs> yeah. right. And yet, uh, I remember having a conversation with Dr. Ben Carson, a literal, actual brain surgeon, and he said to me, I don't know how you've been able to make such strides in such a short amount of time, and um, I haven't been able to do that. We've been doing this for so long, and I said, well, the difference is you were too polite, right? And I said that to him, mm -hmm. and he's sitting in his office, he was too polite. And I think that what, I, what that character thinks is that having the courage really to stand by your convictions, but also to do it in a way that allows him to know that you're not gonna take that nonsense and, and be um, you know, spoken down to or just accept being called a coon or castigated because of uh, daring to think for myself because I'm, I'm an individual. I would probably that character would think, "Wow, this is this is really amazing. This is a wonderful moment to be in," and it's because I believed in myself. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and you know, it's, I used to say this to people in Hollywood because a lot of people in Hollywood would come up to me and drop their voices and say, "You know, I, I saw you on Hannity," and I would say, "Why are why are we whispering? We're right. We're in the right." You know, and I think that that's the right attitude to take. You know, the other thing that occurred to me yet as we were talking on backstage is you mentioned that you have gone back to the church. And it's not something I've heard you talk about a lot. And if you don't want to talk about it, I won't, you know, because in, in conservatism, sometimes the church becomes almost a badge. Uh, you know, I, I'm a conservative. I, I go to church or, or something like that. Is this actually a movement in your life uh, toward God? Yeah, I, I don't speak about it often. And, and you're correct. And I remember early on having a discussion with Ali Stuckey. Um, and she was kind of trying to figure out if now that I was conservative, I was going to come out and be like, and I'm a Christian because I'm conservative. And that's the box exactly, to check, kind of like right. the Joe Biden. I'm a Catholic and then Psalm. Pretty good. I actually was raised um, in a Christian household. And when I say Christian household, I mean every single morning we had to study the Bible. Um, I've written in my book uh, about my grandfather and the influence that my grandfather has had. And um, I just, for, for us, we were just, I guess, Bible belt. Um, my grandfather, faith has always been a dominant in his life, faith and family. And when I was growing up, I was very embarrassed uh, to be a Christian. I was, you know, because once you start socializing, uh, being somebody that was raised reading my book of Bible stories yeah. and uh, having Bible studies and every morning having a Bible study around the breakfast table became embarrassing. I was ashamed because mm. I wanted to be cool, right? Because secularism teaches you that you can be either or. Yeah, right? yeah. You can be cool and hip or right. you can be a... Christian and you can go to church with your family. And so I fell away once I moved out of my grandfather's house, um, away from my childhood and I became more liberal. Um, and I felt, okay, this is the cool, I'm gonna pick cool now. And in being cool, I was dying on the inside. Mm. I was just dying on the inside. I was so miserable when I was a liberal. Um, I was, I was, I lacked <laughs> confidence, crowd, right? right? Yeah. I lacked confidence. Um, I was miserable and I was doing these things that were supposed to make me feel freer and yet, in many ways, it was it was more like bondage. Uh -huh. And when my grandmother died in 2013, it hit my family in a way. It, it was just it was really really hard. It was a very quick death. We didn't know that she was going to die. She was in the hospital and she was dead two weeks later. And it broke all of us. I mean, it's still it's still very difficult for me to talk about losing my grandmother because she was a mother to us and she was just a woman who I can't think of a more perfect human being. I mean, my grandmother never even swore if she ever got mad when she got really mad. She would call you a dodo bird. <laughs> yeah, she'd say, oh, he's a dodo bird. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, and, that's tough. Yeah. yeah, and so when she died, I just sort of had to face myself in a different way 
Meaning, I remember the last thing she said to me was that, you know, Candace, I worry about you. And I was being cool, Candace. I walked into the hospital because she was supposed to be out in a couple of days. And I had this purse. I'll never forget, a Stella McCartney purse. And I was like living in New York City. And she just looked at me as in, this isn't the child that I raised up. Because mm-hmm. you know, in Genesis, it talks about train up, raise up a child yeah, in a yeah, way. Yeah. Um, and it just, it transformed things for me. I, I sort of said, wait a second. My grandparents, they got something right. You know, married when they were 17, stayed together until my grandmother's dying day in 2013. Uh, they were religious. Uh, they actually steered far away from secularism, were not and ever involved in politics. And they were the greatest examples and the happiest people that I ever knew. And it just kind of made me change things. And then when I met my husband, who is also deeply religious, um, his father uh, sits in the House of Lords and Christianity is is written into the DNA of everything that he does. Mm. He does work on the family. Husband uh, studied theology at Oxford. It just sort of, you know, just brought me right back to yeah. where, I, where I started. Yeah, oh, so you, it was coming back, it was coming home. Yeah, it was yeah, coming yeah, home. Yeah. So one of the things that always bothers me, we're talking about Thomas Sowell and all, you know, Shelby Steele, one of my favorite political writers, Shelby Steele. But, but if you're black, that's what you get asked about. That's what you get asked to talk about. And there's obviously so many things right now in politics. It's such a big issue that it's hard to get away from it. So here's something I actually want to know, because as an old white guy, I lived a white life. When I heard people say Black Lives Matter, we were raised, we were taught that we were all Americans, we were all, you know, together in this, and we were not going to live that life. Is there such a thing as a black life? Uh, it's just a life, just a life. <laughs> okay. But there is such a thing as a black life, you know, if you have political interests that you're looking to further, and you're the Democrats, and you realize um, that you can gain advantage by really drumming up racial issues and pretending that uh-huh. we're all so different and we're all segregated. You know, the Democrats originally were the people behind authoring racial policies, um, segregation and things of that nature, and they're behind it again. So they, they really haven't steered far from their roots either. Right, right. So, they, so it's a, a black life is imposed on you. It's not actually something you live. No. Okay. It is not something you live. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, having grown up in, in an America where you, you knew what an American looked like, not by the color of his skin, but by the look in his eyes, because he was, he, he was thinking, I come from there, but I'm headed there. And that's how you knew, you'd see it with the Koreans who came in, you'd see it with the Irish. You'd see, today, when I see that look in somebody's eyes, it's almost always a young black person. Mm-hmm. They, they have got, they've got it. You know, the obstacles have been taken out of the way. People are rooting for them, I think, in real life, outside of Democrat politics, people are actually rooting for them. And I meet people all the time who have got plans and they've got, you know, uh, They've got ambitions and they're building businesses. And uh, and I just keep thinking, why do they have to? It, doesn't this Black Lives Matter or this whole Democratic plan, doesn't that get in their way? Doesn't that stop them? Of course it stops them. You know, any anybody that's telling you, even if there was this big issue in America surrounding race, which I do not believe there is. Um, and statistically, there just is not. There's no proof of that. If you start, <laughs> look, if you start looking at the data, there's just no proof of that. But even if there was, you know, the idea that you're telling a bunch of black people that every time a black person dies, your response should be to riot and to loot and to steal televisions, right, right from Walmart or from Target, um, because you deserve it. I mean, what what is that? You're, you're just teaching them to act like toddlers, right? right? Um, and there's a reason for that. And I, I do truly believe, and I spoke about this, obviously, backstage, is that they are trying to turn black Americans into permanent toddlers. 
um, who don't have a grasp of anything outside of their own emotions, right? So to a toddler, genuinely, you look at a toddler and they're really crying about not being able to have candy for dinner. It's, it's real to them, yeah. right? Like, so yeah. it's, it's, they don't care about the statistics of what, you know, obesity, they don't care about any of that stuff in yeah. reality. It is like, I, I need this for dinner, right? And this is sort of the, <laughs> this is the psychological programming that's happening uh, toward black Americans right now via Black Lives Matter, right? Like this is all you need to care about and obsess over is race, 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 nothing else matters. Look at the stats, data, nothing. You are justified in screaming. Um, and it's such a dangerous, such a dangerous thing to do. And, and you, like I said, remove black American trauma. Imagine toddlers justifying that. Right. Saying, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. You need candy for, you know, this is, yeah. you're right, you're right, you're right. You do need to watch TV all day. You're right, you're right, you're right, right. What would happen to that person, right, to, that, to that little person when they grow up? You know, I say this when I, when I spoke at colleges before the lockdowns and all this, and, and I would talk to a, a black guy. I would say, guy to guy, if a politician told me that I wasn't able to do something without him, as a guy, I would tell him to get stuffed. I would walk away. I would never vote for a politician who told me I was helpless, you know? It's unmanning. It unmans people. You yeah. know? Do, you, do you confront people yeah. about this? You do. Yeah. It's, it is implicit racism like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And, and, and it's like you don't even, you're not even aware of your own racism. And I'll give you a quick little anecdote. We obviously just moved into Nashville. Right. And my husband and I were outside. We have some construction being outside and the neighbors came down to meet us. Super nice couple. My husband was outside first talking to them and they were keeping the conversation friendly. And then I was like, oh, I'll go down and I'll, I'll go say hi too. And yeah. I get down there and my husband's like, oh, this is my wife, Candace. And they look at me and they say, look, interracial couple, she's black, why are we in all our politics? So they said, well, you guys are so lucky you just moved into town now before there used to be nothing but Nazis living <laughs> on this block. Right. And we said, oh, really? They said, yeah, but you know, we've done some redistricting and, and things are better now here in Nashville, but you got here just in time. That is such implicit racism to look at someone and say, I already know your politics, right? I know you're a Democrat because right. you're black. Right. Right. So now we're comfortable. Hey, let's have a conversation about the Nazis um, next door. <laughs> right. So it's and it happens all the time. They just so, think they know everything about me because of the color of my skin. So there have been articles recently that the leftward drift of the Democratic Party is actually leaving minorities behind. That Hispanics and blacks are just going like, this is not what we voted for. This is not what we want. They, they voted for Biden because of that stupid look on his face that says he's a moderate. Are people catching on or is that uh, an illusion? They've been catching on. It's not an illusion because think about the fact that you have had no president who has been harassed more with claims of being a racist and a white supremacist than Donald Trump, right? right. And that's incredible because you had presidents who were sitting in office who were actually racist. Right. Um, and they had never faced charges of racism like Donald Trump faced. And yet, despite that, in, in, in 2020, he gained eight points amongst black men and yep. he doubled his support amongst black women. What does that tell you? Look, Hispanic vote. Yeah. What does that tell you? That the race narrative is failing. So I try to get people to focus on that and to realize that the rhetoric is falling short and they know that, right? If you look at the Democrats right now, they're not acting like winners. They're no, not they're acting not. like winners. I agree. Right? I agree. After yes, you win a game, yes. you don't go, okay, now center everybody who's ever had an opponent and, and make them go away. And yeah. this person and these people are insurrectionists and bull and all over here and, and make it go. Oh, and by the way, uh, we beat him so squarely and fairly that we want to make sure we pass laws so we can never run again. <laughs> That's not how winners act. I'd be like, oh, I beat you so easily. I hope I have to run against you time and time again because right. you were an easy person to beat. Yep. Um, so. No, I, that's good. It's, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's hopeful. So what do you want the show? Can, Candace, again, this comes on after my show at 8 uh, Central Time, 9 Eastern Time. And, and like I said, you know, I, I'm not somebody who watches talk shows, but this is a show that I really feel is important. 
What do you hope it'll be? Um, you know, I hope it will be me. When I say that, I, I think that when I entered the space of politics, I was kind of questions from both sides because people said, oh, well, you can't be in politics and also enjoy culture. Right. Mm, and then yeah. people like, well, you can't be in culture. You can't go from, you know, having a debate with Cardi B to, to then uh, wanting to sit down and have an interview with Vice President Pence. And I said, why not? Mm. You can't go from hanging out with Kanye West to hanging out with Ben Shapiro, why not, right? Um, and so I have always understood what Andrew Breitbart said, which is that politics is downstream from culture. He's correct, it is right. it's beautifully said, perfectly said, um, and I understand that they're constantly speaking to each other, and I want my show to be exactly that. Um, I, want to, I want to straddle that line, I want, I want it to be a show where one week, Kanye West could be sitting down and I could be interviewing him. And the following week, you know, I just put out a public request to sit down with Vladimir Putin that I could sit down with him and discuss foreign yeah. policy. Um, and so that is what you're going to get. And, and I think in the beginning, you'll get a monologue. These will be written for me every week about just what's on my heart, what's on my mind, and really kind of getting America for the first time to focus on the issues. Because I think right now, and something the left is really good at is like creating this ADD, right? Something happens, it gets a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of headlines, and they move on very quickly, and then you go, wait a second, but this thing that you said actually didn't come to fruition or actually was wrong, but now they're creating a fire over here, so we're not looking. And I, I also want to be able to go back and to digest uh, with Americans and say, no, this was really important, and we need to talk about this That's great. in yeah. a longer fashion. Yeah. If you do sit down with Putin, don't drink the tea. That's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will not drink any tea. Don't drink anything that's glowing. Don't drink <laughs> so, so what... A, if you had to pick three issues, if you know these are the things that I think are really on on Americans' minds or should be, mm -hmm. what would they be? Um, I think at this exact moment, I would say uh, domestic terrorism, and I put that in uh, parentheses. I think there's a lot of really scary stuff going on in terms of conservatives being silenced mm -hmm. um, and this idea of domestic terrorism being used. Right. Um, you know, the FBI people showing up at people's doorsteps and saying, "Why were you here?" Um, is something to be alarmed about. So I, I want to really talk about what's going on in this country. The education system is high up there. Uh, kids feeling that they can't speak up or, or you know, this propaganda. Yeah. Being told to just remember the answers and do not think critically and obey um, or have your lives ruined is, is really scary. So that's the angle towards young people. Um, and then, of course, I would just say culture. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm, I'm saying a lot. People think it's, oh, this is dumb. Why do we care about the Queen or uh, and Meghan Markle, and why do we care about Cardi B? Let me tell you what the political message is. Let me tell you why you need to care about these right. issues and what they're actually doing. Yeah. And you think it's just a Grammy's performance. You think it's just um, Meghan, you know, and and Harry being brats. But there are there are more important things that we need to talk about here that's yeah, happening, which is the corrosion of values. Conservatives are slow about this. They have been yeah. very, but it, but it's changed. It actually changed with Trump. They started to realize. Oh, it was me. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they happened at the same time. Who knows? You know. <laughs> you know the one. The one last thing I want to talk about is that, along with being black, you're also a, a lady. And you know, you had this argument with Cardi, Cardi B that was really fascinating, talking about the fact that she was kind of degrading herself and all this. But but you say a lot that you have an audience of young girls, and this is. I feel that that women are are actually. Being trying, they're trying to convince women to become extinct. Mm. What do you want them to see when you come on stage, when you do this show? What do you want them to see? I want them to see that in many ways, uh, America, America threw out the baby with the bathwater. And what I mean by that is that there were some things in America that definitely needed to be fixed, sure. right? 
Oh, coming out of segregation, oh, racism. Yeah. Of course, there were things about America that were not great. But there were some things that America was really getting right. And what prog progressivism is teaching the young girls is that everything about America is rotten and wrong and backwards. The idea of you wanting to be married and being in a household is them trying to hold you down to a new form of slavery. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I want to teach them that discipline, making good decisions, it sounds weird and it sounds paradoxical, but discipline does lead to more freedom. It does. It does. All right? true. And uh, that these people that you are following and thinking these people that are so cool and so hip, you need to really examine their lives um, and ask yourself one question, which is, is that individual happy? Is that the lifestyle I want to lead? And nine out of 10 times, you will say no. So yeah. why am I following this person? Yeah. Conservatism works. Uh, traditional American values work. Family works. Um, and self-respect and dignity also work. It's funny. People wanted to be let in. That was the problem with segregation. So we were keeping people out. Mm -hmm. Not that the values were bad, but that the door was closed. When you open the door, you should come in and take part in those values. Right. That's what they're there. Candace Owens, I always love talking to you. It's just great, and it's great to see you, and I'm so glad you're here. Your show is Candace, creative name for a show, and it comes on after my show today, premieres my, after my show today at 8, and that's 9 Eastern time. Wonderful to see you. I hope to see you a lot more. Definitely will. All right, you have crawled desperately to this moment, wading through the, uh, the fever of your own fever of anticipation to get to the mailbag. Here it is, the mailbag. We need everyone to keep washing their hands. Yeah! <laughs> that was great. That was your best ever. I, I have to say, there should, be, there should be an Oscar for that. All right, from David. Uh, Hail, Lord of the Multiverse and Slayer of Ease, who is no relation to Spencer Clavin. Uh, something I've noticed in the culture dating back even into the 80s and 90s is that even when Marxist, communist, socialism, socialists are portrayed as the bad guys, the underlying evil of Marxism and Marxist philosophy is never indicted. The bad guys are bad guys because they are bad guys, not because they are Marxist. Do you think the pervasiveness of Marxist thought among the cultural influencers is so prevalent that they actually can't accurately analyze the evils committed by those who share their ideological leanings. Uh, well, yes. First of all, it's a great observation. It's absolutely true. I mean, I've seen movies where the socialists are the bad guys, but the ultimate blame lies somehow with Adolf Hitler. You know, I mean, and they never, it never occurs to anybody that maybe the blame for Adolf Hitler lies with the socialists. You know, maybe he wouldn't have been elected if people hadn't been so afraid, uh, rightfully afraid of socialism. But it's a really excellent observation. There's a famous old movie, an anti-communist movie named Pick Up, well, let's see if I can find out, Pick Up on uh, South Street, Pick Up on South Street. Uh, and it, it's an anti-communist film, but there's a, a, an American woman who's kind of a working class woman who says at the end, uh, communism is bad. And somebody says, why? And she says, I don't know why, it just is. And I always wish there had been a better, better line in there because some, somebody should explain it. You know, the problem we have with Marxism and the wonderful disguise that Marxism has is that it comes with a set of values that capitalism doesn't have. Capitalism has no values. You have to bring your values to capitalism. And as we see, people don't want those values because they can't stand the shame. They can't stand the restriction on themselves. They can't stand the restriction on their freedom that comes with acknowledging that creation has a meaning, with it, that there's such a thing as good and evil. So they think they can replace that. They think they can replace a free commitment to God's good with a system that will force them into doing the right thing. So Marxism has this comfortable thing where it comes along with the value of equality. Capitalism doesn't have that. Capitalism doesn't even have the value of making money. 
you know, it doesn't have the value of making money. It just has the value that if you want to make money, this is how you do it in free trade. And as I always say, the Ayn Randians are absolutely wrong. You can't just have capitalism. You can't just worship money. You have to bring values. You have to bring your values to capitalism. You cannot, it's perfectly good capitalism to invent a car that kills people and then hide it from people because the lawsuits will cost you less than fixing the car. That's maybe good capitalism, but it's evil. You have to have values first. And if you have values, You've got to admit that there's such a thing as values. You've got to admit that the world has meaning, that creation has meaning. You're back, right back where you started from. They lean in to the Marxist values thinking it will save them when, in fact, all it can do is enslave them. And that's part of why imaginative people, because the imagination is where is where Marxism works. It works in your it works great in your imagination, it's just in reality where it falls apart. Uh, that is why imaginative people, I think, are so drawn to Marxism. Because yeah, you know, I'm an actor. I'm going to cheat on my first five wives, and then when I'm 80, I'll marry a 20 year old girl, and we'll stay together, and everybody will say what a wonderful marriage it was. Yeah, I'm going to do all that, but I'm going to be good because I believe in Marxism. Because I believe in people getting taxed, taxed. Although my riches are out in the Cayman Islands where nobody can touch them. You know, that's that's basically what it does. It gives you it gives you a shroud of virtue to protect you uh, from not having to be virtuous yourself or strive. None of us is righteous, no, not one, but we strive toward virtue and toward righteousness. And so I, I think it, yeah, it's very hard for people to say the system that promises equality, that promises to treat the poor well, is a bad system and doesn't work and why it doesn't work. Now we have to look at why it doesn't work. And that's going to take you on a ride that's going to end up uh, at the throne of God. And you're not going to like it there because then you're going to feel bad about who you are. Uh, you know, that's, that's really what I think it is. I think that Marxism is just attractive for those reasons. From Ethan, uh, I guess I'm supposed to say big fan. Uh, yeah. I mean, don't just say, I guess I'm supposed to say, just say it, pal. No, I'm a senior in high school, going to university next year. Wish me luck. But for my senior independent novel project, I was able to sneak in your book, If We Survive. I, that's very funny. If We Survive is a young adult novel, an adventure novel that takes place in a uh, Central American country, and uh, its, its politics are, are kind of plain. Uh, I absolutely love it. Such a great adventure. Um, my plan is to totally uh, slam one of the characters and how he represents young people's view toward America and ideas of socialism and communism. This will undoubtedly make my teacher enraged, but it's senior year, so I'll go out with a bang. My question is, how are we going to retake our school systems? Every year, my teachers are obviously and openly liberals. The left has taken our schools totally. Is there even any hope in reclaiming them? Thanks for reading. Uh, to be honest, you're my favorite out of the DW crew, even with Candace on the team now. Uh, I don't know about that. Don't tell Ben. Love the show. Uh, yeah, elite schools. There's a really good uh, article about this uh, by my sister, uh, uh, Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic, and another one by Barry Weiss in City Journal uh, about the way that elite schools, even while they are funnels for the rich to become the elites, that's what they are. They create places where the rich can be trained to be elites. They're also teaching them wokeness to the extent, in Barry Weiss's article, to the extent where the parents are terrified. They're terrified because if they protest, their kid may lose his place, may lose his precious uh, golden ticket to Yale, and will therefore not become the success that they have bred him to be. And these are hardworking people. You know, these are elite people, but they're people with two careers who are giving everything to get their kids this elite education so they can become part of the elites. But they have to train them to wokeness. They have to teach them lies. They have to teach them all this stuff 
because the elite has failed. They have to enter a failed elite that is now lying, telling lies, and censoring the truth. So they have to learn the lies and be forced to believe the lies in this double think, even as they know that they're untrue and even as their parents are saying, we don't want their kids to learn this. They have to do this. This is the system for creating a new elite. And they don't want to create a new elite. They want to continue the failed elite and the elite has failed. So that is what they're doing. So how do we take back the schools? We don't. We have to create educational systems of our own. We have to create, we have to get out of this elite system. We have to start hiring. I mean, this is one thing the God King talks about all the time, which I just, uh, I think is right. You know, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't hire uh, according to the elites. I mean, look, we hired Knowles who went to Yale and look how that turned out. So we should stop doing that. And we should, no, you know, I mean, we should stop using their systems, but we also have to create our own. This is where Jeremy and I disagree. I think it is a good thing to go to college and to learn culture and to learn about uh, literature and to learn about science and to get an advanced education. It may not be good for everybody. I don't I don't say it's good for everybody, but I think for those people, it's good. It's, to those people for whom it's good, it is good. But I do think we have to have new systems. And Hillsdale is a, a great college, which has been seeding uh, educational places, homeschooling, obviously, charter schools are working. Uh, some of these things are happening. And this, of course, is what those teachers unions, the corrupt teachers unions, where they should just be called that, the CTU, the corrupt teachers union, and of course, the Democratic Party, who receives so much of their funding from the teachers union, are fighting against. Charter schools have been shown undoubtedly to ra uh, uh, raise up um, minority kids they don't want them. They want to shut them down because the t they hurt the, the teachers unions. Teachers unions don't like them. They're public schools, charter schools, but they don't like them. And so they want to shut them down. They don't care that, that black kids and minority kids are, are not being educated. They don't care. They do not care because they are trying to support a dead system. So we have to start our own. We cannot uh, just try to get our kids into Yale and transform Yale. I think that that train has left the station. Uh, from John, your supreme and mighty clavenness, I procured a copy of your novel, The Scarred Man. That's an old one. After you mentioned it on your show a couple of weeks ago, it arrived recently, so I haven't been able to read past the uh, about the author. This was a book that I read when I was transitioning, as we say, from my pseudonym, Keith Peterson, to my real name, whatever it may be. Uh, my burning question, what does Keith Peterson have to say about you living with his wife and child? Does he even know? Seriously, what are the benefits to writing under a pseudonym, and why might a writer choose to do so? Well, I, I can think of three reasons. I did it. Uh, I did it actually to get out of a contract. I was in a contract with a small press. I was writing very radical novels, uh, you know, that weren't very good, but I was selling them to a, a small press. And the small press had a, a, a contract. It was an infinite regress. You had to sell all your, your next book to them. And then when you sold your next book to them, you had to sign a contract saying, I'll sell them my next book. So it was just went on forever. You had to keep se selling them your books. And I was not making any money off these. And I wanted to make some money. I knew I was a good thriller writer. So I started to write under a pseudonym to get out of that contract because the contract was with Andrew Clavin, not with Keith Peterson, and that helped me get out. But you can do it for a lot of reasons. They're, brand, they're branding reasons. For instance, if you write different kinds of novels, this is a problem I've had all my careers. I write a lot of different things. Mostly I've written crime and suspense, but I've also written like Another Kingdom uh, is fantasy suspense. I've written different kinds of things. So you might say, well, I have, there are a lot of writers like this. There's one in England whose name escapes me now, but he has two careers. One is a science fiction writer, one is a serious novel writer, and he uses uh, two different names to accomplish that because he doesn't want people turning up for one thing and finding another thing and being disappointed because that's not good. So you might do it for branding purposes. And the other purpose, and one I wish I had done, one I'd wish I'd done from the very beginning, is for anonymity. 
Uh, you know, writers are not people who want to be sitting in front of the camera talking. This is something that I kind of found my way into accidentally, and it has been a, a wonderful experience, but it's not what I planned. I planned to, uh, to hide in my room, write things, perfect them, make every word perfect, and then sell them, and then possibly come out. I wanted to be, Richard Burton, the actor, uh, once said that writers have it uh, great because they can still uh, get a great seat in a restaurant by calling in their famous name, but nobody recognizes them when they're there. And I think that that's something that a lot of writers want. A lot of writers want that. A lot of writers, I mean, you know, this is this is something you see uh, in films. The writers want to create the picture, but they don't want to be the face of the picture. They're not interested in being the face of the picture. And I, I definitely have that strain in my personality. I want my things to come out. Uh, I want people to see my name, but I I was perfectly happy not being recognized on the street. So that's another reason. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons you might use a pseudonym. Uh, and uh, and I, I am sorry that I didn't stick with a pseudonym, but it was all such a mess because of the two names I was already using such a, that I just thought the easiest thing to do was to move from Keith Peterson back to Andrew Clavin. And that's what I did with The Scarred Man, which is a, an interesting novel. I mean, obviously, I would write it differently if I wrote it today, but it's a youthful novel, a young novel, and it works in a lot of ways. Uh, all right. I think I'm going to have to stop there. I'm going to have to stop there and plunge you toss you off the heights of the show, of the Andrew Claven show, into the depths, the black, stormy, fiery depths of the Clavenless week ahead. It will not be a Clavenless week for those of you with an all-access subscription, however. Those of you who have that will be able to see me again on the all-access show. The rest of you, uh, are you going to make it all the way? No, you're doomed. But, you know, it was nice knowing you. And if you do survive, I will be here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Rand Paul takes Dr. Fauci down a peg, Joe Biden's DHS secretary incentivizes illegal immigration, and a father gets jail time for referring to his daughter as she. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.